Most of you, I think, are familiar with H.B. Charles. He is the pastor teacher at Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church, located in both Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida, where he has been preaching, teaching a pastor since 2008. He speaks at a variety of conferences, conventions all over the country. He married to his wife, Crystal. They have three children, and it is just a delight to have you here. So thank you. Come and minister the word. Good morning, brothers. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you this morning in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let me publicly thank Pastor Steve and the elders and Joe and all who are responsible for me having the wonderful privilege to be here with you this weekend. It's a blessing, privilege, and a joy to share this time with uh, with you. I um, get a chance by God's kindness to speak uh, times outside of my own pulpit and at this season of my life if uh, I have my my way uh, I'm more inclined to uh, accept these opportunities to speak to first pastors and then secondly to men and so I'm, I'm, I'm just encouraged to see a room full of men who spend your weekend in fellowship together around God's word. I know that there are others that uh, the pastors could have invited, and uh, I'm glad that for whatever reason, they didn't. (laughs) Let me um, thank you for praying that God would undergird me in my travels yesterday. I... um, Got on the uh, plane. We were getting ready to take off. The the um, pilot came on to make his announcements, which I assumed was just a typical pre-flight announcements. But instead, he announced that we had engine trouble, and the whole plane groaned except me, because <laughs> I was just glad he figured that out while we were on the ground. so yeah um, so we spent hours on the runway and that uh, caused me to miss connections and miss last night but it is a joy to be here with you this morning I wanted to spend the entire weekend in the book of Psalms the um, book of Psalms is the hymnal of the uh, Jewish people. However, it is more than the hymn book, it is also the prayer book. The Psalms speak both to God and about God. And I often say uh, the Psalms, the book of Psalms is, is the most honest book I've ever read. It's uh, so unlike contemporary worship that it's just uh, triumphant in so many instances. There are songs that are in the minor notes of life, if you will. You might find in one psalm, the psalmist declare, Lord, I praise you. And a few verses later, Lord, where are you? just an honest book, and it addresses all of the vicissitudes of life candidly under divine inspiration. In Psalms 120 and following, there is a series of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And during our time together today, there are two of those psalms that I want to point your attention to, Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. These are songs of ascent, songs of going up, songs of degrees. The King James Version said that I grew up with. They were hymns that the caravans would sing together as they marched their way to the holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate one of the God-appointed Jewish feasts. Psalms 128 and 127 are significant because they remind us 
that the assumption of the culture was that these caravans going to worship consisted of families led by fathers who were to be godly men. This hour, we'll look at Psalm 127. Let me breathe the word of prayer, and then we'll hear the reading of God's word, and then consider what God will say to us out of what he has already said to us in his holy word. O Lord, our God, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. We praise you, bless you, and thank you for the gift of this day, for the privilege of walking today in the assurance of our salvation through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. We thank you, Father, for this pastor, this congregation, the men gathered this weekend, some from near, some from far, be at your feet, as it were, that you would teach us. We pray that you would help us as we study your word to draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word and cause us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray as well, Father, for physical strength and spiritual energy. To speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And may Christ alone be exalted as the word is explained, we pray. Amen. Psalm 127, reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And therein the reading of God's word is this. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Amen. Permit me to label this talk, it all depends on God. It all depends on God. The Melbourne Village College near Cambridge changed its official motto in 2011. The motto had been Nisi Dominus is roughly translated, without the Lord, all is frustrated. It is a restatement of Psalm 127 verse 1, unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor in it in vain. Because the school, however, no longer taught Latin, almost no one knew how to translate that phrase. And those who could translate it did not know what it signified. So school officials changed the school motto to the more user-friendly, inspiring minds. I'll assume that they made this change for practical reasons, not theological ones. But it is hard not to see the change as a parable of the times that we live in. Our quote-unquote inspired minds are now deemed more important than 
God's exhaustive sovereignty. But I commend to you that schools may change their models, cultures may change their values, nations may change their laws, but the word of God does not change. Isaiah 40 verse 8 declares, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Scripture is clear. Nothing you do, brothers, in life matters without God. That's the bottom line. That's the big idea. That's the sermon in a sentence that I want to get across this hour. Nothing in life you do matters without God. That's the message of Psalm 127. The inscription above verse 1 reads a song of ascents of Solomon. As I mentioned, the songs of ascent in Psalms 120 through 134 were Jewish hymns that the pilgrims would sing together as they caravanned to Jerusalem for one of the God-appointed holy feasts. Many of these songs of ascent, many of these hymns they sung on their way up to Jerusalem were about what would happen once they arrived at the temple. Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But this eighth song of ascent is not about what happens at God's house. It is about what happens at your house. Psalm 128, 127 reminds us, brothers, that there is no true biblical distinction between the secular and the spiritual, the practical and the spiritual. Because God is God, all of life is spiritual. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, the A clause says it succinctly, in all your ways acknowledge him. All of life is to be lived before God. God is worthy of your total devotion at home, at work, as well as in church. Psalm 127, if you notice the inscription again by way of introduction, is, is one of two psalms ascribed to Solomon along with Psalm 72. It is categorized as a wisdom psalm, as it reflects the wisdom of Solomon found in the book of Proverbs. The sad reality is, brothers, however, is that Solomon did not practice what he taught. According to 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon allowed his love for women to turn his heart away from God. That's a message all by itself. True wisdom is not what you know. It is what you do with what you know. You, you play the fool if you know the right way but do not choose the right way. James 1.22 says it this way. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. But at some point before Solomon went the wrong way, he wrote this wisdom psalm that teaches us that nothing matters without God. You may enjoy a prosperous life. You may raise an accomplished family. You may build a successful career. But nothing you do in life matters without God. It all depends on God. 
That's the message of the song. And I want you to see it in the text as it is worked out in two main sections. Psalm 127 teaches that your work life depends on God and your family life depends on God. First, your work life, brothers, depends on God. Notice verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Note the emphasis of this opening stanza. It is found in the word vain, repeated three times in these first two verses. Vain, vain, vain. It means empty, meaningless, worthless. In fact, this word vain is the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, which was also written by Solomon. In a real sense, Ecclesiastes is the testimony of a man who has looked back and laments that he has lived his life without God at the center. And what is his conclusion about that life lived without God at the center? Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. Without God, all is vanity. Empty. Meaningless, worthless. Throughout Ecclesiastes, he paints that picture of vanity in dramatic terms. He says it's chasing after the wind. In Ecclesiastes, vanity summarizes a life wasted. But here in Psalm 127, it points to a condition not yet determined. This is a warning that that says to us, your life does not have to be that way. It warns us that only God can make life successful in its work and stress-free in its work. See it in the text. He says you need God for your work to be successful. Note the two truths in verse 1. Verse 1 first asserts no house is stable without God. Picture it. A builder makes his plans, collects his materials, and builds his house. And it's a beautiful house. The neighbors Commend the builder for his fine work. But what the undiscerning eye does not recognize is that this successful building project is doomed to fail. Why? Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Be clear, brothers, this does not mean that his plans were incorrect or that his materials were shoddy or that his construction was careless. It may be the best house erected in the entire community. But if the Lord is not a central part of that building process, the builders labor in vain. No house is stable without God. And then verse 1 says, no city is secure without God. Watchmen watch over the city that it will not be attacked or robbed or destroyed. This is the other side of of diligence. Diligence is needed on one hand to build the house. Diligence is needed on the other hand to protect the house. And so watchmen are placed on duty to look out. And they must remain vigilant. They must not fall asleep on their post. They must be ready to defend the city. Yet the finest soldiers in the land can be assigned the night watch and the city still fall to its enemies. Why? 
Because unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Before we move on, I want you to feel the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility in this opening verse. On one hand, this verse emphasizes divine sovereignty. Ultimately, the Lord is the builder of the house. The Lord is the watchman of the city. Psalm 121 verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God builds the house. God watches over the city. And yet, we see in this verse also that it requires human responsibility. Even though God builds the house, builders must labor. Even though God watches the city, watchmen must stay awake. Bottom line. Without God, you cannot do it. Without you, he will not do it. You must do all that you can and trust God to do all that you cannot. Life is much if God is in it, but much is little if God is not in it. Only God can make your work successful. And then in verse 2, he adds that only God can make your work stress-free. Verse 2 contrasts two ways a man can go about his work. He says, without God, your work is empty. That's verse 2. It's a dramatic picture of a stress-filled life. This stress-filled life expresses itself in a man's attitude toward his work. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. Now be clear, the psalmist is not saying that there's anything wrong with being a hard-working man who rises early and goes to bed late. In fact, scripture con- condemns the opposite. Psalm, Proverbs 26 verse 14 says, as a man turns on his hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. My favorite Proverbs that warn about slothfulness is the lazy man who won't go to work because he says there's a lion in the streets. (laughs) No, the wise man prefers to go to work rather than stay in bed. The difficulty of work is a part of the fall, not work itself. Adam had a job before he had a wife. And before there was sin, the way we are wired as men made in the image of God, it is noble to labor. The text is not condemning the hardworking man, but it is reminding us that life should be more than an unbroken cycle of bedroom, bathroom, table, job, bedroom, bathroom, table, job. It is foolish, he is saying, to burn the candle on both ends as if life depends on you. A stressful life is seen in a man's attitude toward his work, but he says that a stressful life is also expressed in a man's attitude toward his wages. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. What a statement. Bread here represents what is needed to sustain life. Bread is food on your table, clothes on your back, a roof over your head. But notice, he calls it the bread of anxious toil. The psalmist is saying, but there, are, there are several factors that can cause you to not have bread to enjoy. 
A failed harvest can produce that. A limited supply can result in there being no bread. But the psalmist is suggesting that that there could be a full supply, there could be a bountiful harvest, and you still be stressed out because of sinful anxiety. The picture here of bread of anxious toil pictures the laborer who earns his money to buy bread. He sits at the table to eat, but he cannot enjoy the bread that is in front of him because he is worried about where he will get bread for tomorrow. Matthew 6, 25 through 34, I would commend to you, brothers. Where Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, gives an essential principle for kingdom living. A fundamental principle for Christian discipleship. And he repeats that principle several times in that passage. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about what you will eat or drink or wear. Do not be anxious about what tomorrow will bring. Proverbs 10, says the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Without God, your work will be empty, but with God. Now is the contrast. Your, your work in a sense will be easy. The final clause of verse two can be read two ways. It may read for he gives to his beloved sleep. Which means do not stay up worrying about what tomorrow will bring. Do all you can and then sleep with confidence in the divine sovereignty, infinite goodness and unwavering faithfulness of God. Psalm four, verse eight. David says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I love that. Psalm 4, David is writing in a time of immense pressure and trouble and hardship. But David says, I will not stay up all night pacing the floor worried about what's going to happen next. Psalm 4 and 8, I'm going to lay down. I'm not going to pace all night. I'm going to lay down. You do know, though, it's one thing to lay down and another thing to be able to go to sleep. David beforehand predicts, I will not only lay down, I will also go to sleep because I know that it is you, O Lord, that makes me dwell in safety. But there's another way to read this clause. There's an alternative reading of the text that may read this way. He gives to his beloved as they sleep. I like that as well. You can work from early in the morning until late in the night without making any progress towards your goal. But God can give to his beloved as they sleep. I think the traditional rendering is right, but I'm I'm fond of this alternative reading. It's a reminder that God works the night shift. While you are sleeping, while you are unconscious to the world around you, God is working it out. Matthew 6, 33 and 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The language there means placed alongside while you are focusing on God and his kingdom and his righteousness, God will place alongside you what you need when you need it. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so the first part of this Psalm teaches that your Work life depends on God. The second section of the psalm teaches that your family life depends on God. 
Your family life depends on God. The connection of these two sections is significant, brothers. In the ancient Near East, work and family were inextricably tied together. This is what we find in Psalm 127. Verses 1 and 2 are a warning about work. Verses 3 through 5 are an affirmation about the family. And when you put the two sections together, brothers, the psalm is teaching us by its very structure, not just its content, that real success is measured by the life of your children, not the accomplishments of your career. Verses 3 through 5 teaches two ways to view children from a godly perspective. He says, first of all, the children are a divine gift. Notice verse 3 that describes children two ways. First, he says children are a heritage. Heritage means a possession. It is often translated in the Hebrew Old Testament, an inheritance. Think about that. The father works to leave his children an inheritance, but in a real sense, children are an inheritance that God gives to the father and mother. God gives children as living assets. They are a heritage. Children are also a reward, says verse 3. Talking to one of the brothers at our church this week, he asked me a question, brother, with a young family. And uh, as we were talking, I just, I'm not as old as my children say I am. I'm still, I still consider myself a relatively young, young man, but um, I'm old enough to see so much shift in the culture. I started in ministry young. And if you would have told me just a few decades ago that the necessary qualifications for clarity that you need to make in preaching would be necessary in the days that we live in, I, 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 would, I would have laughed at you. I wouldn't have believed it. Yet here we are. We must not take truth for granted. So let me just linger for just a moment. He says that children are a, a reward, but it's important for us to see here that this affirmation of children is an assumption of marriage. Sure, every child is a blessing regardless of the circumstances of his or her birth. But we must be clear, this passage is no endorsement of our quote-unquote hookup culture that results in children becoming the collateral damage of baby mama and baby daddy drama. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 is the definitive statement about the family in the scriptures. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Lord established marriage as a covenant of companionship between one man and one woman for life. Children are not a part of that one flesh covenant. This is what I've had to tell my children for years. <laughs> she was my wife before she was your mama. <laughs> and when y'all raise up out of here, I'll get my wife back. Children are not a part of the one flesh covenant. They are the fruit of that covenant. But roots should be planted before fruit is born. I say that carefully. I know that every family is dysfunctional. And all of us, all of our families have dysfunction one way or another. But we must not apologize for the truth that there is no better way to raise children than with a married father and mother who love 
one another before their children. If you try to figure out all of the principles and techniques that they teach these days about parenting you, you'll go crazy. If I may, my father died when I was 16 years old, the uh, day before Father's Day. And I, I was called to pastor his church the next year, 17 years old. I'm not recommending that. That's just my testimony. <laughs> and it was, it was for years. I was not, I did not, for the first long chunk of my ministry, I never, I never preached Father's Day. Grief. We just made it hard to preach on Father's Day. And the first Father's Day I preached was years later, after the birth of my own son. I still have those notes. I preached that message once. I have not preached it again. It was a topical message. I try not to do that. But I call that message a father's desire for a godly legacy. And in that sermon, I actually, after the recent birth of my son, I envisioned my funeral. And the possibility of my son giving remarks at my funeral and what would I want my son to say at my funeral? And I concluded three things. Simply. I would want my son, now my children, to be able to say that I know my father Loved Jesus unconditionally. I know my father loved my mother unconditionally. And I know my father loved me unconditionally. All that is claimed about parenting can be overwhelming, but there, 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 is, there is nothing more effective and God-honoring than a father in the home who loves Jesus, obviously. Who loves his wife, obviously. And who loves his children, obviously. We live in a culture now where many delay and avoid starting a family for the sake of their careers. Others frown on family because they, they want to be free to do their own thing without any responsibility or accountability. Men often work hard to make money to buy things to seduce women with no intention of commitment. And as a result, abortion on demand has enabled and encouraged women to be just as foolish as men. And as a result, the most dangerous place in America for a child is in the womb of, her, of his own mother. But here again, the words of Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. We read consecutively through books of the Bible on the Lord's Day in the church where I serve. We are reading through the book of Genesis. We've just started. What a joy it was to read through Genesis 1 and 2 and to hear God create the heavens and the earth and say, this is good and it is good and it is good. Giving his benediction on all that he has created. Genesis 2, 18 is the first thing that it's not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Marriage is good, brothers. Saying that to the young brothers. It is honorable. It is noble. Outside of Christ, the greatest blessing in my life has been the dear woman who has been putting up with me now for a quarter of a century. And I tell her regularly, if you leave me, I'm going with you. <laughs> Amen. What if you have the gift of singleness? Well, I'll just read first Corinthians chapter seven, verses eight and nine to the unmarried and to the widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 
But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I'm not an expert on the mysteries of those spiritual gifts, but obviously Paul is saying that if you can't control yourself, you don't have the gift of singleness. (laughs) And it is better to marry. He says children are a divine gift. The rest of the psalm provocatively says that children are not just a divine gift. Children are a spiritual weapon. Verse 3 declares children are a precious gift from God. Verses 4 and 5 describe the practical function of this blessed gift. In the real sense there, verses 4 and 5 teach two realities about being a father, being a parent. He first says that being a parent is a battle. Verse 3 describes children as a heritage and a reward. Verse 4 describes that gift in military terms. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Note the military language used to describe a father and his children. The obvious lesson here is that in a real sense, being a father is a spiritual battle. Godly parenting is spiritual warfare. I look at around the room and see some of you, those of you here look my age and, and older. And I, I say to you what I say to our congregation, the culture is not after us. They, they are, they're through with us. They assume we're pretty much set in whatever direction we are going. The attack is against our children. Am I right? And beware, brothers. You, you may wait to teach your children truth, but the enemy is not waiting to teach them lies. It is a battle. But yet this military language is not intended to discourage. There are really implications to be drawn here that are helpful to us in leading our families. To lead our families well, the text is saying to us, among other things, to recognize the enemy that would come against our families. Parents are spiritual warriors who protect their children from the enemy. And to do this, the warrior must have discipline. In other words, you cannot win the battle with an attitude that says, do as I say, not as I do. Likewise, the warrior must have discernment. Notice what kind of weapon he describes the children as here. An arrow, not a sword. A sword is used for hand-to-hand combat. An arrow assumes an enemy at a distance. The implication is that not every threat to your family will be obvious. Dangers lurk in the distance. And you need spiritual discernment. To see the enemy lurking in the music children listen to, TV and movies they watch, clothes they wear, friends they hang out with, and activities they participate in. And you must strive to hit the target. To do that, you must, the the warrior shapes the arrow. A, A warrior going out to battle doesn't just pick up whatever weapon. He takes his own bow. And he takes arrows The assumption in this ancient world that he has shaped and sharpened himself. And so it is with children. The Bible says, train up, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Teach him the way that he should go. The warrior shapes the arrow. The warrior aims the arrow. 
The warrior must focus to aim the arrow. His eyes can't dart about different places. He must focus. And you must focus. You must have spiritual focus to aim your children in the right direction. Father and son climbed the mountain together. They got to a difficult and dangerous part of the climb. And the father paused to determine which step to take next. Only to hear his son say from behind him. Choose the good path, dad. I'm right behind you. That's the heart cry of every child. Then you've got to. You got to recognize the enemy. You got to strive to hit the target. But then the warrior has to at some point release the arrow. Crystal and I have three kids. HB just had a birthday, 23, just had a birthday two weeks ago. Our daughter's 20 and our youngest is 14 in the house with us. We're living the reality that parenting is the inevitable process of losing control. When I moved to Jacksonville, our youngest was just several months old and she was a daddy's girl. And I just remember as our children were young, how totally dependent they were on us. But of course, the more the child grows, the more independent he or she becomes. And inevitably, you will reach that point where you will no longer have direct supervision over your children. Children will not be children anymore one day. While they are under your influence, you, you've got to influence them toward godliness and then let them go early. You must teach them the way to go. So that when you re release them. Our son has been home recently. And I, I watch his relationship with his mother. There's a lot of things I would go back and change. But uh, I just praise God. You know, when, my, when my son was born and as he was growing I basically had one rule. I was a young pastor and I did a little bit of traveling during those days. So I, I had one rule that I instilled on him first and foremost. Do not disrespect my wife. You, you mean my mom? No, I don't mean your mom. I mean my wife. She is my wife. You just here temporarily. I came home from work one day. He waited till she left out the room and he came in and he said, Dad, can I tell you what your wife did to me today? <laughs> You're to raise them up in the way that they should go. And then when it's time to release the arrow, trust God. Trust God. The most painful thing about parenting is, is that you've been down the path they're going and you want to help them avoid some of the mistakes you made. But that's a factor of life that you don't have control over. You must trust God. Being a parent is a battle. But lastly, he says, being a parent is a blessing. Verse four states the benefit of the warrior having an arrow in his hand. But notice verse five. Verse four is the warrior with an arrow in his hand. Verse five states the benefit of having a quiver full of arrows. Notice the benediction. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. 
claims of overpopulation, limited resources, economic challenges, worldly thinking, and outright selfishness cause many to frown on a large family with many children. But the Bible says, blessed is the man whose quiver is filled with them. Genesis 128b, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living things that move on the earth. It, it is a blessing to be fruitful and multiply. What is that blessing? And it's a strange way he states it. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The man with the quiver full of arrows does not have to face his enemies, says the psalmist in the gate alone. The assumption is that his children will stand with him. It's a remarkable picture of a godly family. He says you stand with your children when they're young and they will stand with you when you are old. You are blessed if your quiver is full of arrows. For the record, you are still blessed if you only have one or two or, like me, three arrows in the quiver. You are blessed if there are no arrows in the quiver. We live in a world where if you have no arrows in the quiver, there is a society full of dropped arrows that need a quiver. Psalm 113, verse 9. Praises God because he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. God literally did that for Sarah and for Rebecca and for Rachel. And God ultimately does that through Jesus Christ. In Christ, he gives the gift of a new family with new priorities and a new destiny. Thus, he's worthy to be trusted with our work life and with our family life. I commend in closing that um, I think Psalm 127 describes the reality of work and family life in ideals. We live in a messy world. And yet we should just fully embrace all that this psalm says. In the midst of a messy world we live in, God is worthy of your trust and of your obedience and of your praise. My morning commute when I was a young pastor in Los Angeles, I would listen to John MacArthur in the morning on my way to work. I would typically listen to music on the way to work to get me ready for the day. But if I was in the car at the right time, I would turn on KKLA and listen to Dr. MacArthur. And he went off one, one morning and focus on the family came on. And I usually would go back to my music, but it just kind of was playing and my mind was distracted and I was, you know, you're listening and not listening. By the time I kind of caught what I was hearing, there was a young adult lady giving her testimony. It was just a blessed testimony. And the more I listened, the more discouraged I became. Her story just seemed like the ideal story. And as I mentioned, my father passed when I was 16 and my, my life was kind of thrown into chaos after that. And there were just things about her testimony that inevitably I could not share. And, and for some reason, the more I listened, the angrier I got. By the time I made it to the office, I, I was in tears. Angrily asking God, why? 
Why did you allow this to happen? Why did you not let that happen? Why? And it was as if I could hear God say, not, not, not audibly, it was louder than that. As I was yelling angrily at God, it was as if he was whispering to me, but have I been faithful? Yes, I took your dad away, but have I been faithful? You had this plan for your life and it didn't work out that way, but have I been faithful? Tears of sorrow became tears of joy. Because my life and family and story have not been designed the way I would have written it. But in the midst of it all, indeed, God has been faithful. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21, 22, 23. In the midst of his lamentations, he says, this I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His compassions never come to an end. They are new Every morning, great is your faithfulness. The ultimate proof that God is faithful is in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to see the faithfulness of God on display? Run to the cross. Look at Jesus. Who lived the righteous life that we could never live. Died at the cross to pay for our sins. Rose from the dead to give us new life. No matter what our story has been. Great is thy faithfulness. O God our Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thy changes not, thy compassions fail not. As thou hast been Thou forever will be. Can you sing that, brothers? Not now. In a real sense, it doesn't count when you sing Great is Thy Faithfulness in church or at a graduation or an anniversary or a celebration. It counts When your heart is broken, when the burden is heavy and when the storm is raging and you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You are in the midst of that able to sing. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, its wisdom and its authority. We thank you for how its wisdom guides and governs and guards life. Have mercy on us. We confess that in far too many instances, we have allowed the world to squeeze us into its mold of thinking. We repent of our sinful thoughts and our sinful attitudes and our sinful perspectives. And pray that you would renew our minds and thus transform us. That our lives would be shaped by your good and excellent and perfect will. And joyfully so. I pray for the men under the sound of my voice. I pray simply in the language of 2 Timothy 2 and 2 that you would would make us faithful men. Not of our own strength, wisdom, or resources, but faithful men who are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
And may our faithfulness to Christ be evident in how we do our work. Help us to work as unto you and not as unto man, knowing that from you we shall receive a reward and with you there is no partiality. And to be faithful to you in our family life. Loving our wives as Christ loved the church. Not provoking our children to anger, but bringing them up in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. We send under your word this morning at various seasons of life, but whatever season of life we find ourselves in, I pray for each of us that you would help us to trust you with all of our heart. And not lean on our own understanding. To acknowledge you in all of our ways that you would make straight our path. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.